Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new criminal case. A noble profession, a profession full of wisdom, patience, and commitment. Nurses have had a hard duty to take care of the patients, to satisfy their needs, and to be available 24 hours a day. Some nurses take up this profession out of a desire to help and take care of others, while others follow this career path because it offers a good and stable income with the accumulation of years of seniority and experience. And then there are a few who do it to satisfy their instincts. There are no lack of examples in this last category. The nurse, Niels Hudgel, killed 85 of his patients in Germany using injections between 2000 and 2005. In 1970 in England, Dr. Harold Shipman allegedly killed nearly 250 of his patients, taking advantage of this blind trust they had in him. Or the American orderly, Richard Angelo, nicknamed the Angel of Death who in 1987 killed 25 patients in a New Jersey hospital. This is not an exhaustive list, but it does exclude other less-known cases that have remained in the shadows. Many of them confessed during their arrest that they felt superior to people who were physically weaker and at their mercy, and that the fact of having the upper hand motivated them to commit other murders. Today's case is that of another serial killer in a white coat, Elizabeth Wetlaufer. No one would have suspected this pleasant and plump lady in her 50s, originally from Ontario, committing crimes of such cruelty and with such methodism and cold-bloodedness. Employed in the Kerrison Care Nursing Home since 2007, she quickly began to take the lives of the elderly and sick people in her care. Usually working at night, she took advantage of her night shifts and the lack of movement in the corridors of the nursing home to act out being one of the only ones able to administer medications to the residents of the home. In a grip of depression and compulsive personality disorder, Elizabeth, at first motivated by her work, began to hate it more and more. Having the pharmacy at her disposal, she also took advantage of its pill for amphetamines and antidepressants for her personal use. In all, Elizabeth Wetlaufer had eight victims among the old, leaving out the failed attempts, 14 charges in all. This nurse used as her preferred modus operandi injections of insulin in high doses that could lead to coma and imminent death. An insulin overdose is difficult to be detected in the blood. Death of patients are always considered to be of natural origin, given their advanced age and very fragile state of health. No one ever suspected the nurse of being the cause of these deaths. Elizabeth was never caught in the act, 
but confessed to her crimes on her own to the local police department with an extraordinary calm and composed attitude, assuring that she had done it because of an evil voice telling her what to do in her year. Her case provoked a terrible shock and a review of the living conditions in retirement homes across Canada. I invite you to discover with me the case of this angel of death in a white coat. On September 29, 2016, in the Toronto Police Department's Criminal Investigation Department, an unusual interrogation took place in one of the closed-door rooms between a detective and an ordinary-looking woman in her 50s. The interview was recorded by cameras inside the cramped room where the interrogation was taking place. The woman in front of the policemen who interrogated her seemed serene, relaxed and very talkative. Her name is Elizabeth Wetlaufer. A 49-year-old nurse's aide who had come to confess eight murders she allegedly committed 10 years ago. The policeman was amazed by the ease and the banality of the tone used by this woman to speak about serious facts for which apparently she alone was responsible. As for the victims, they were all very old, between 70 and 90 years old on average, residing in the retirement homes where Elizabeth worked in the past. In these specialized institutions, she never stayed long, often being dismissed for her lack of professionalism and for negligence when dealing with patients who required special attention. Her operating mode was painless, claiming not to be sadistic in nature and not wanting to inflict a painful death on her victims. She told, however, she never used barbaric and traditional methods such as strangulation with a pillow, which would have left the suspicious marks on the body. No, she used a less blatant method, a lethal overdose of insulin for each patient. This was a well-taught choice by the nurse who knew the side effects of this drug. Insulin being difficult to detect in the blood and considering the advanced age and the very fragile state of health of the victims, everyone believed it to be a natural death, be it the staff of the nursing homes or the respective families. The interview, which lasted more than two hours, gave Elizabeth a break. The surveillance camera shows her quietly sipping coffee, singing and meditating in the absence of the police officer who was interrogating her. When the detective asked her why she would commit such murders, she told of experiencing temporary fits of anger, of hearing strange and supernatural voices talking to her in her head. She added that most of the patients were incontent, amnesiac, immobilized, in an almost vegetative state, and suffering both physically and psychologically from their condition. Her only wish was to put an end to their suffering and humiliation they experienced every day in the nursing homes. The investigation that followed revealed other dark areas of the nurse's tormented personality. Alcoholism, dependence on psychotropic drugs, and long stays in psychiatric institutions in the Ontario region. The police, after serious reflection, decided that it was their duty to inform the victim's relatives, even if the case did not appear easy. In addition to the eight murders already confessed by Elizabeth, the investigation also led to other facts that have remained unsolved for a long time. Repeated attempts to murder other patients in different nursing homes, failure to assist a person in danger, theft of non-prescribed medication, repeated errors in the dosage and administration of remedies to patients, forgery and the use of forgeries. The police understood that the case was going to be difficult because the biggest problem in their investigation of serial killers was that their murders were often spread out over several years and dispersed over different areas. Elizabeth is no exception to this rule. Given her long experience in homes and other private residences for seniors, her journey began as soon as she obtained her nursing degree and her first job. 
between 2007 and 2016, when she resigned as a caregiver, she worked in three of the specialized institutions for seniors, Cares and Care, where she stayed the longest, followed by a brief period at Telfair Place, and then in the latter stages, Meadow Park and Ingersoll, private residences with better services and benefits, since they are funded by the residents' families. But let's go back a few years ago to better understand the tormented personalities of this serial killer. She was born Elizabeth Tracy May Parker on June 10, 1967 in Woodstock, Ontario. Her parents, Doug and Hazel Parker, were both strict people belonging to the Baptist Church. From an early age, everyone called her Betty Parker. She attended Huron Secondary School, where she also sang in the school choir and had a passion for drama. Her greatest wish was to pursue a career in the arts and to study acting once she got into university. She was mostly a teenager who was insecure, a bit clumsy and self-conscious about her appearance, which she did not find very feminine. Her acne and her precocious overweight body bothered her and often overshadowed her other friends who were physically more attractive. Her sexuality also tormented her, and she did not dare talk about it to anyone, especially not to her mother, who might judge her too harshly. As a teenager, she knew she was a bisexual, but she was also convinced that no one was really interested in her, girl or boy. Her former classmates speak of a petty and false teenager, who hid her true nature behind an innocent and omnipresent smile. Her parents, especially her father Doug, did not give her enough freedom. He refused to let her go to proms and dances with her friends, even when they were organized by their parish church. Poetry was her only comfort. She wrote her own verses about love, sexuality, despair, and loneliness. The dreary period of adolescence also had a role to play in her future behavior as an adult woman. Her cloistered life in the religious atmosphere, the family home, would later make her an adult with uncertain and very immature behavior. Having been immersed in religion since her early childhood, it was only natural that she chose to pursue her education in an institution run by the Baptist Church. She received her Bachelor of Arts degree in religious education from the London Baptist Bible College. However, she made a complete change of direction when she finally decided to study nursing. She enrolled at Conestoga College in Woodstock, Ontario. She graduated as a nursing assistant in 1995 and began practicing soon after. Two years later at a Baptist Sunday service, she met her future husband, Daniel Wetlaufer. The two young people quickly fell in love and were married only a few months after their meeting. Daniel Wetlaufer was a simple man from a modest background who had not studied much. He was a truck driver and was therefore often away from home. The years pass without the couple having children and the relationship begins to falter. Elizabeth blamed her husband for not being involved enough in their relationship and for being emotionally distant and cold with her. The relationship deteriorated further when Daniel discovered to his great displeasure that Elizabeth was cheating on him by having a virtual love affair with a woman on social network. This relationship, although platonic, damaged the couple's integrity. Daniel, very religious and unable to imagine that such a thing could destroy his marriage, left the house well before the announcement of his divorce with Elizabeth. They divorced amicably in 2008 after 11 years of marriage. Elizabeth, though not in love with her husband anymore, didn't take this outcome well. She sank into depression, began to consume more alcohol, and resort to sleeping pills to have a pretense of sleep. On her weekly day off, she went to nightclubs in the hope of meeting her soulmate again. Apart from her sentimental problems, 
her work was another endless source of tiredness, stress, and permanent anger. Since 2007, she had been a caregiver at a local nursing home, Kirsten Care. She mostly did night shifts and was responsible for distributing medications to the patients. Several evenings a week, she was the only one on duty and had to take amphetamines and make it through till the early morning hours. But most of all, Elizabeth Wetlawfer did not like this job that motivated her so much in the beginning. The people living in the nursing home, most of whom had Alzheimer's, were incontinent, tormented, and discouraged her. Some also had dementia or amnesia, while others were completely immobile, requiring constant special care and attention. Although she got help from other nurses on a daily basis, Elizabeth felt increasingly unhappy in her job. Some patients, given their age and illness, were abusive and angry, and many stubbornly refused to take their medication, bathe, change clothes, or eat. Despite this, her colleagues described her as a jovial, kind, and caring person to everyone. On the feeling side, Elizabeth began to look for lesbian relationships through dating sites and social networks. It was there that she met a woman, Sheila Andrews. The two friends met sometime later, started a relationship, and moved in together. At the same time, Elizabeth received several warnings in her job, cares and care for making mistakes in administering treatments on more than one occasion and for accidentally giving insulin to a patient who was not even diabetic. One of the staff members found her passed out on the floor of the hospital, probably very drunk or drugged by the psychotropic drug she was taking every day. The episode made her superior stat her credibility as a person in charge of a specialized care unit. Following this, she was investigated by the Ontario Department of Health. In addition to this initial practical problem, the Ontario Department of Health also received reports from student interns that had been repeatedly sexually propositioned by Ms. Wettlaufer. However, with a great deal of persuasion from her superiors, she managed to keep her job with a promise that she would not let her private life take precedence over her professional life, a promise that she will have a hard time honoring afterwards. With her partner Sheila, all was not perfect either. Their relationship started to be compromised when the latter brought her sick and dependent mother to live with them. The old woman was a perpetual source of contention in the couple, and when Sheila asked Elizabeth to come and give her a hand to wash her sick mother, she would reply, leave me alone. I see people like her every day in my job. Apart from the fact that her mother's presence under her girlfriend's roof was not very well accepted. Sheila also detected in Elizabeth behavior of a lot of changes in emotions and moods, a kind of bipolarity that manifested itself unexpectedly and in different ways. She also said that Elizabeth sometimes tended to behave like a little girl and do childish things, even though she was already a middle-aged woman. In order to calm her worries, Elizabeth started to drink more while trying to put on a good face at work where she tried to not arrive in a state of inebriation. As was the case once before, indeed, she knew that this time her sacking would be imminent. Having the responsibility of the pharmacy and being in charge of administering the drugs to the patients during the night, she did not hesitate to pilfer in the cupboard containing various treatments and managed to steal psychotropic drugs of opioid type for her personal use. When her condition did not improve at all, she voluntarily returned to a detoxification center in Toronto where she stayed for some time. She was diagnosed with a personality disorder and antisocial behavior. She was released a few months later and returned to work. On the night of August 11, 2007, James Silcox, an 84-year-old resident at the Kerrison Care facility, died while Elizabeth Wetlaufer was on duty. 
the World War II veteran and father of six had been a recent resident of the nursing home. The autopsy concluded that he died of natural causes due to his advanced age and the weakened health. His family came to take his body for burial, and the case ended there. Elizabeth was even thanked for her good and loyal service for having kept poor Mr. Silcox company till his last breath. Just as you have certainly understood, James Silcox's death was by no means of natural origin, but indeed a murder. The first one committed by Elizabeth Wetlaufer. She even showed grief to the family of the deceased, took care to put away his belongings herself, and spoke of him in the best terms. The Silcox family were very touched by the kindness of this nurse who stayed at the relative's bedside until the end. In the following days, she confessed the crime to her partner. She said she had killed James Silcox by injecting him with a large dose of insulin. No one suspected or saw her on the day of the murder, as she was alone in the ward. Sheila, although shocked by this revelation, did nothing to discipline Elizabeth and simply told her to stop doing such things in the future or she would be caught and arrested by the police. Elizabeth only half heard this warning. The obsessive desire to see those poor old people die never left her, and worse, the death of James Silcox only encouraged her to commit more murders. A few months later, in December, during the Christmas holidays, another resident, an 86-year-old Italian-Canadian woman, Clotilde Adriano, slipped into a deep coma during the night. Elizabeth was obviously at her bedside that night. No one would suspect her of trying to take Mrs. Adriano's life. The old lady eventually pulled through despite her already failing health. She died only one year later in 2008, of natural causes this time, it seems. Her sister Albina Demetrius, a resident in the same home, died two years later in the same circumstances. Coma, remission, and then death in her sleep. Once again, it was Elizabeth Wetlaufer who was at her bedside during her illness. It is all the more curious to note that none of her colleagues were able to make the connection between the deaths, which all occurred in almost the same way. At the same time slot, when she was on duty, and with patients presenting the same symptoms. Between 2008 and 2009, two other Kirsten Care residents, Michael Bridal and Wayne Hedges, survived insulin overdoses like the two sisters, under the same conditions. Their age not exceeding 70 years played a role in their rapid recovery, except that Elizabeth was tired of seeing her victims get off only after a short time, and the desire to see them die slowly began to torment her more and more. To satisfy her murderous instinct, she felt already to double or even triple the dose. The murders resumed between December 2007 and March 2014, and there were six more residents of Kirsten Care who succumbed to fatal overdoses. These new residents, what Laufer chose, were very old and physically emaciated, having the minimum chance of getting away with it. Maurice Granat, 84, Helen Matheson, 95, Gladys Millard, 87, Mary Zurovinsky, Helen Young, 90, and the last one, Maureen Pickering, 79, died one after another during the night, without once arousing suspicion as to the strangeness and circumstances in which their deaths took place. An injection of vitamin D, lying in their respective beds without screaming or pain, and above all, without the slightest trace. If Elizabeth chose insulin, it was obviously not a benign choice. From her long experience in the field, she knew that insulin is difficult to detect in blood tests, even at high doses in the blood. Its immediate dissolving power makes it a much less suspicious substance than psychotropic drugs, alcohol or poison such as arsenic, and its strong almond smell or cyanide, which causes bruising and a change in skin color. 
These poisons are easily detected in blood tests and have a long-term effect on the skin, the scalp, and the inside of the nails. Elizabeth Wetlaufer, who was on call during the nights, had her own method of persuading her patients to inject insulin. When they asked her about the drug, she answered in her most neutral and professional voice. It's vitamin D. It can only do good to you. You're almost never in the sun. Death by insulin overdose may seem painless, but in reality, it is not. It can lead to many complications before death, including suffocation, blood clotting, gradual immobilization of the limbs, and spasm leading to the most terrible agony. And for a serial killer as sadistic as Elizabeth Wetlaufer, seeing her victims die was a real sense of victory. During this period, her family and sentimental life was not at its best. Her partner Sheila Andrews, tired of her unpredictable bad temper, decided to leave her. Following this new separation, Elizabeth turned to religion and to God, hoping to find some comfort in her very chaotic and unbalanced life. She began to attend Sunday services at her childhood Baptist church again. However, she claimed that voices kept tormenting her and telling her to do horrible things. That these same voices often taunted her, mocked her, and also laughed in her ear. Sometimes, she also thought she heard the voice of God and told her during interrogation that she would have acted under his command. After another major misconduct and after several more warnings, Elizabeth was finally fired from Kerrison Care in 2014. She was suspended from her duties for gross malpractice, prescribing medications in correct dosages and lack of responsibility and organization. However, the provincial organization, the Ontario Nursing Association, intervened in her termination case and showed mercy to her. They agreed to pay $2,000 and provided a letter of recommendation. She quickly blew the money and was soon left without any resources. A few months later, she found a part-time equivalent position at Meadow Park, another nursing home. During this time, she began to talk openly about the crimes she had committed in cares and care, naming the patients and their medical conditions and saying that she had done so to put them out of their misery. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. She confided in her crimes to several people around her a couple of friends, an intern who worked with her at Meadow Park, a lawyer, and even her parish priest and his wife. Knowing her psychiatric past, these people were not convinced by her revelations and remained convinced that Elizabeth would have invented this story to draw attention to herself and believe that she would be incapable of hurting a fly. Instead of denouncing her to the police, they offered her advice, recommended her not to do it again. A serious mistake that could have prevented the rest of the events to come. During this period, she also regularly consulted a psychologist, to whom she went every month for her follow-ups. The psychologist, who had been treating her for several years, prescribed two new medications on her request, one for compulsive personality disorder and the other for depression. 
However, the treatment did not improve her mental health. She decided to go to a detoxification center. But once hired at Meadow Park, Elizabeth Wetlawfer's murderous instincts resurfaced using the same modus operandi as in her previous murders. She injected a lethal dose of insulin into 75-year-old resident Arpad Horvath, assuring him that he had given him a vitamin shot so that he would feel better when he woke up and his joints would be less sore. The old man was persuaded and his terrible agony took place under the eyes of the nurse's assistant. Elizabeth, in order to not to arouse any suspicion, decided to leave the institution for another one in the Toronto area itself. This time, she decided to move to a private residence for the elderly and those with dementia. The place is called Telfer Place and she stayed there until 2016 when she left her nursing position for good. At Telfer Place, a 77-year-old Sandra Taller was once again close to death from an insulin overdose. Then, it was the turn of 68-year-old Beverly Bertram, a resident of Ingersoll's private residence, who was also subjected to Elizabeth Wetlawfer's murderous rampage. Beverly Bertram, considered the youngest of Wetlawfer's victims, was one of the key witnesses still alive at the opening of her trial. In 2016, Elizabeth finally hung up her lab coats and left the nursing profession for good. She occasionally returned to the CAMH Detox Center, where she received treatment for her drug and alcohol addictions, where she had become a volunteer. When one of the managers of the facility asked her to give insulin to young diabetic patients, she was so afraid of doing it that she refused without giving any explanation, which surprised the manager knowing that she was a nurse by profession. These crimes weighed her and prevented her from concentrating so she started to speak about it again to the other assistants of the detoxification center, telling them about the eight dead residents, that she had the firm intention to kill them and that it was absolutely not an accident. The latter, frightened and shocked by Elizabeth's words, decided to alert the authorities in order to clear things up. She sent a long email to the College of Nurses of Ontario, the provincial regulatory body of the profession, telling them about her offenses at Kerson Care, Meadow Park, and more recently, Teffler Place. In her four-page letter, she gave all the personal details of the patients in her care, their ages, and their premeditated intention to kill them. She also took the opportunity to resign from the College of Nurses and asked for an investigation to be opened, following which she surrendered herself to the police. On October 25, 2017, Within a unit of the Investigation Department of Toronto, in a closed door filmed by hidden cameras, the interrogation of the Angel of Death took place. During this interrogation of more than two hours, the police officers went from surprise to surprise. Instead of the repentant guilty person he thought he had in front of him, he found an obese woman, visibly very comfortable and very loquacious, who told him without any difficulty and in sequence to different crimes committed between 2007 and 2015 in the retirement homes. She told how before each crime, she would see everything in red, that she would go into a black anger, and that a voice would tell her what to do at that moment. The police officer who interrogated her made her take several breaks. He knew that he was dealing with a serial killer of a particular kind, those who kill in hospitals, harassed by incontinent and difficult patients. But Elizabeth assured him that she did not want to take revenge on these people. On the contrary, she just wanted to put an end to their suffering and allow them to leave this world with dignity. The police officer had in front of them the letter from the College of Nurses of Ontario, which provided the details of the people killed by what offer. 
he also learned that Wetlaufer had been in and out of rehab and psychiatric facilities in the area and that she was undergoing heavy treatment to control her behavioral problems. Aline Gills, the judge in charge of the charge file, gave the green light for testimonies to be collected within the community in order to help the investigators. The families of the victims also had to face the truth about their parents' death. Inspector Rob Hagerman of the Toronto Criminal Investigation Branch and Sergeant Elizabeth Brown had the difficult assignment of breaking the news to the families. They knew it would be difficult and wanted to do it the right way. Therefore, together with their other colleagues, they wrote a text for each family with all the information about the ongoing investigation and visited them one by one, truly sympathizing with their pain. For each of the families of the eight wet lawfare victims, the news caused a terrible shock. According to the police, these people had placed their parents in nursing homes with the expectations that they would receive a lot of attention and protection from the nursing staff, especially since these institutions, whether Kersent Care, Meadow Park, and Turfle Palace or Inger School, all have a good reputation in the area. It was inconceivable that a caregiver could think of harming them in the way that Elizabeth Wetlaufer did, without anyone noticing or raising any suspicion. However, investigators asked the families to maintain secrecy until the investigation had cleared up all the loose ends. Despite her medical records and psychiatric records that could guarantee mitigating circumstances, Elizabeth Wetlaufer knew that she was now facing a serious prison sentence. In addition to the eight premeditated murders, she was also charged with four counts of attempted murder and two counts of assault and remanded in custody on January 13 to await trial. Her trial began at the Toronto Court of Appeal in early June 2017. Against all expectations, the accused waived her rights to a preliminary hearing in camera and pleaded guilty to all charges against her. Her verdict was finally announced on June 26, 2017 in the presence of family members of the victims, as well as Beverly Bertram, her last victim aged 68, who narrowly escaped death. During her hearing, she admitted that she was perfectly lucid when she killed her victims and that even though she knew the difference between right and wrong, being raised in a conservative environment, she insisted, however, that she acted under the influence of an entity. God or the devil wanted me to do it. The former nurse described the strange laughter she heard in her ear before committing each murder, a kind of crackling as of coming from the pits of hell, she said. She spoke of a strange and terrible sensation, like something squeezing her chest. A voice told her what to do. Grab the syringe, insert the liquid, and inject it into the patient. Then watch him or her die. Following the jury's deliberations, the court sentenced Elizabeth Wetlaufer to life imprisonment, including eight life sentences with no possibility of remission or relief for 25 years. Judge Ilian Gills said that of a caregiver's conviction that it is complete betrayal of trust when caregivers do not prolong life, but end it. When the court asked Elizabeth Wetlaufer if she had anything to add, she just said that she regrets everything she did and hoped that families can forgive her one day. The Attorney General of the Province of Ontario, Yasser Nakwi, and the Minister of Health and Long-Term Care, Eric Hoskins, ordered that the Canadian government open a public inquiry into the case of the murderous nurse. At a press conference, they agreed that from now on, nursing staff working in retirement homes will be subject to prior investigation and psychiatric follow-up, adding that if there are any problems, the person concerned will be dismissed from his or her position with no hope of being hired elsewhere.
they insisted on the vigilance of the competent authorities and the involvement of the entire community. Deploring the lack of vigilance in these specialized hospital units, they also concluded that everything will be done to prevent a tragedy like this from happening again in the future. Regarding the Wetlawfer's case, the two senior officials insisted the investigators verify all the sources and gaps in the care of the caregiver, as well as the conditions that allowed her to continue to work despite several warnings and serious professional misconduct. However, they added in a more optimistic tone that 78,000 current residents of retirement homes and long-term care units financed by the Canadian state all have a reproachable reputation and that the safety of the seniors was the priority, while insisting that everything will still be done to ensure the standards of these places are absolute compliant and of quality. On the side of the public prosecutor, on the order of Judge Ellen Gills, the order was passed to investigate the conditions of admission and life of the residents in the various units of the province. This investigation lasted two years, beginning in August 2017 and ending in July 2019. No less than 91 recommendations were given in the report of the investigation, including more assiduous monitoring of staff, an increase in funding dedicated to the training of staff in retirement homes, as well as an increase in the number of doctors, caregivers, and life assistants. The College of Nurses of Ontario, outraged by the stain on the profession it represented, also sued Elizabeth Whitlaufer to remove her from its panel altogether, based on the written testimony she had sent to them by mail. The order requested a formal court hearing, which was granted. Yet on the day of the hearing, Whitlaufer did not show up refusing to attend, presumably a fear of being confronted by her former colleagues and supervisors. At the end of a single hearing, it was decided that Wetlaufer would be officially and permanently banned from practicing nursing in all of British Columbia's territories. Following her life sentence, Elizabeth Wetlaufer was detained at the Grand Valley Institution and then at the Wanier Center for Women in Ontario. In March 2018, she was transferred to another detention center in Montreal. She continued to be monitored by a specialist and writes poems that she publishes online under the pseudonym Betty Parker, her maiden name. However, the condition of her detention are unknown. She will be eligible for release in 2041, although there are already voices protesting this decision. Some families of the victims, including children of James Ilcox and Orpad Horvath, have filed a joint complaint against Elizabeth Wetlaufer and the facilities where she has worked in the past including Cares and Care, Meadow Park, and the Turfle Place. The College of Nurses of Ontario was not immune and was sued by Mr. Horvath's daughter, Suzanne Horvath. This caused such a media scandal that in January 2017, the government of the province of Ontario was forced to formally prohibit the Cares and Nursing Home from accepting new residents. This shutdown was declared following numerous flaws within the facility. However, operations returned to normal the following December. On August 1, 2017, the public inquiry led by the judge in charge of the case and detailing with the safety of long-term care home residents was officially voted on in Parliament and passed by the Council of the Province of Ontario. The Elizabeth Wetlaufer case has caused a stir and scandal in Canada, which boasts of some of the best hospital care in the world. With 14 charges, she is now one of the most prolific serial killers in North America. Her conviction brought the Ontario government face-to-face -face with its own shortcomings. Do the specialized centers that are supposed to welcome the elderly or people at the end of their lives really deserve their impeccable reputation? 
what are the solutions in the face of an increasing demand to have seniors committed to these institutions with the guarantee that things will be done in the best possible way, both for the residents and for the caregivers, especially when we know that Canada's population has been getting older and older for several years now? And what concrete evidence can guarantee the conditions for the next few years? The Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, took this issue very much to heart and insisted that all the governors of the different provinces can raise awareness and contribute to common efforts to guarantee a comfortable, dignified and humane end of life for seniors. The living condition of the elderly is still a very sensitive subject, almost taboo in industrialized societies. With it comes the guilt of families who are blamed for having thrown out their aged and dependent parents. If putting seniors in homes and other retirement homes is the norm in Western European and North America, the fact remains that in several countries in the Middle East, North Africa and Asia, it is considered shocking and condemnable by society, given the religious beliefs that the culture of the community to the expense of the individual that is in vogue in these countries. Even if the current figures confirm that this is slowly becoming a common practice, it is not unanimously accepted we would agree that these figures can never match those of North America alone. The problem of abuse in nursing homes is also a taboo subject that companies try to hide. Sometimes video captured by security cameras show inhumane and deplorable living conditions. Many die in total indifference, both from institutions and from families who don't have time to spend with their elders. Many of them never come to their own free will and are forced to come by their families, who cannot care for them especially in cases of long-term illnesses such as Alzheimer's, amnesia, and dementia. A cohabitation between children and parents becomes very difficult. Others, however, say that they feel better in retirement homes. Whether they have the opportunity to bond with people of their generation and receive care that is difficult to provide at home. In Italy and Greece, two countries where the status of parents or grandparents is still sacred, people choose to have their aging population cared for at home by a personal assistant, this approach not only allows the elderly person not to leave their home and thus avoid the shocks of changing location and room, but also to have family and neighbors nearby. They are also the two European countries where the population lives the longest and the healthiest. Today, with increasing life expectancy and improved medical and health care, the world's population will tend to live longer. But at what cost? We're at the end of our show for today. So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.